Hello, John. How are you? I'm, I'm well, Dan. How are you? I'm doing good. What's up? I was just uh, watching YouTube videos of rats getting caught in rat traps. Oh, what, what inspired that? Did you see that video of the one with the pizza running with the pizza? Yeah, yeah. yeah I was, I was, uh, <laughs> I was looking at Twitter, and then I heard, uh, you know, I, like most Twitter memes, I let a couple of days go by before I really investigated it. See if it holds water after a little. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Everybody's like pizza rat, pizza rat, and I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> I, I'm not. I don't care. And then, you know, two days into a thing, if people are still saying pizza rat, sure, I'll go figure out what pizza rat is. Right. Um, <laughs> and then I read an article in Wired about how uh, how people are monetizing pizza rat. How and, are people, wait, how are people monetizing pizza rat? Well, apparently there's a company, I mean, I, I, I say apparently, even though it should be self-evident. <laughs> Uh, there is a company that um, immediately upon Pizza Rat's arrival in the world, I mean, very, very early on in Pizza Rat's arc, yes. someone from this company identified Pizza Rat uh, as a uh, potentially viral piece of content. Uh, the, uh, the company is called Jukin Media. <laughs> Somebody from Jukin Media was was uh, was scanning the internet and saw uh, saw Pizza Rat. It only had like twenty five hundred views in at that point, but they said Pizza Rat is going to be big. Oh yeah, and so they reached out to Pizza Rat's creator, let's call him <laughs> the person who had the who had the foresight. <laughs> To see a rat dragging, I mean, who hasn't seen a rat dragging a piece of pizza in a New York City subway? <laughs> right. If I had filmed every rat I saw doing something interesting in the New York City subway system, well, I'd be a millionaire. Uh, but this guy filmed 14 seconds of this rat dragging a piece of pizza down the stairs. Somebody from Jukin Media secured a contract with him. With the guy, with the guy who made the video. Early on, they reached oh. out to him and they said, "We love your video. It has twenty five hundred views. How would you like? How would you like to sign a little contract with Juke and Media? And if you know, if this video goes viral, which we think it might, <laughs> even though there are two hundred million videos an hour, this fourteen seconds of a rat dragging a piece of pizza down the stairs, we just have a good feeling about it." And the guy signed a contract with them, and then for what? For representation. Well, you know, yeah, that Jukin Media now owns Pizza Rat, owns hashtag Pizza Rat, and they are collecting advertising revenue on all of the um, many millions of views it has now acquired. Wow. And then Jukin Media is sharing that money with the owner, the, um, the I'm sorry, the original creator of Pizza Rat, and they're all getting rich. I mean... I don't think the the smoke hasn't cleared yet, but I'm pretty sure when uh, when all is said and done, when Pizza Rat has five million views, uh-huh. <laughs> um, that dude that created it, and I'm I'm sorry, I'm not crediting him. I should uh, I should you know I'm reading I'm scanning here this article. You know, everyone listening to this program has the internet. Presumably, they can yeah. go. Oh, it's Matt Little. Matt Little. Matt and Little. Surprise. Surprise, surprise, Matt Little is an actor and a comedian in New York City. Uh-huh. 
what are the chances that there would be an actor and comedian living in New York who had the who had the the fucking quick wittedness to film pizza rat anyway so matt little's not gonna have to be an actor or a comedian for long because he's gonna get a you know presumably uh just a, a one followed by a hundred zeros check uh for all of the all of the, the great rabbit the revenue pizza rat has generated anyway so i was watching pizza rat and just loving it man i must have watched that 14 second video two or three times yeah that's um, in a row you know, just like right away, just I watched it, then I watched it again. I didn't actually watch it three times. I watched it twice. And then YouTube, um, apparently now, yeah, that their new, their new business model is, did you like that 14 second video? Well, hold on. All you have to do is nothing. And we will immediately start just streaming videos to you. Like yeah. now that you're on YouTube, if you do nothing, all you have to do is nothing. You will watch YouTube videos all day long. We will just keep churning them at you. And the next one was a guy had set a rat trap in his kitchen and uh, put a camera on it. Because again, genius, right? People are geniuses. And um, so here's this rat trap sitting in the kitchen. I mean, it was so tantalizingly framed. I wanted to go take the, the corn chip out of it. And uh, this rat came along. <clears throat> and of course, the guy down at the bottom is like, you know, this is a graphic video. But who among us hasn't killed a rat? Ugh. You know, as, to, to defend himself against the 10,000 people who are going to be right. like, this is cruel. Somebody, a rat got hurt. <laughs> and so I watched this rat come and it's, it's, it's brilliant because the tension just builds this guy, I mean, I've set a few rat traps, but I didn't think to do it like this guy. Did. What did he do? Well, the rat trap has a whole little smorgasbord of uh, like potato chips and cheese. And so the rat comes along <laughs> and the rat is very suspicious of the, of the trap at first. And he kind of gingerly like he's jumpy or whatever you know he's he's he i think he recognizes that it's a dangerous thing but he he pulls a chip away and he takes it and runs goes somewhere else for 17 minutes eats the chip then he comes back gets the second chip and the whole time you're thinking this is the time the rat's going to get it but no he gets away a second time with the chip comes back a third time gets a piece of cheese so by the fourth time he comes, you're thinking, first of all, I've been watching this video for 10 minutes. There's something wrong with me. Right. But you're also thinking this rat, I know how this is going to end because I've seen the previews in the theater, <laughs> right? The, the plot of this movie has been spoiled for me. I know that this rat is going to get it, but I'm kind of astonished at, at how diabolical this is because each time you see the rat is more confident he feels like, I know this trap. I, I, I know my way around a trap. Comes back again and again and again. And finally, when the trap is completely scoured, like he's gotten everything off of this thing that there is to get, comes back that last time. And this is where, the, this is where it should be a lesson to us all. 
comes back the last time and all of his caution is gone. All of his skittishness is gone. And with like tremendous like aplomb, he just climbs right up on the trap and it snaps and gets him. And then the the tragic part, of course, is that it doesn't kill him right away. And then he flops around. And that's when you called. Uh-huh. So you, you spared me from having to watch the last minute of the death throes of this rat. Yeah. I got to see the kill shot. And then just as it was like, oh, no, am I really? I'm not going to spend another minute watching this rat writhe in agony. Then Dan Benjamin called. So mm-hmm. it's like, perfect. Could, today is working out great. one of the things that i think i find uh interesting is how people spend sort of spend their time throughout the day and uh and it seems like it seems like you find pretty interesting things to do in a given day but a lot of the time they're not they're not like the things that I do, maybe they're not typical for our listeners because earlier in the week I saw some photos that looked like you were at some kind of a place. It looked like a dwelling, but it didn't have any walls. Yeah. More of a compound. Let's call it a compound. Like a kib, like a, uh, like a kibbutz. Like a kibbutz. So, uh, so a group of friends, a group of people I know, some of whom are friends, did a thing which you can still do in Washington, uh, which, I, you know, I, it may seem strange, but I have been party to more than one group of friends who has proposed to do this thing. But one group of people I know actually did it, which is they went down uh, to Western Washington somewhere in what kind of most people in Washington imagine is just the jungles mm-hmm. of Washington. There's a giant there. There are. I would say there are multiple places in Washington where there are no roads and even though there are no roads, it didn't keep the, the lumber companies from, from bushwhacking in there and chopping down all the trees at some point. But then having chopped down all the trees, then the lumber companies, you know, kind of just let it go crazy. And, so down in southwest Washington, sort of around where Chris Novoselic lives, there's a giant chunk of land, which is fairly mountainous, very close to the coast, and there's just no there are just no roads to it. It's um, it's just wild. There's another stretch. There's another big area, sort of in southeastern Washington, on the Oregon in that corner by Oregon and Idaho, completely untracked wilderness and obviously coming from alaska i know a lot about untracked wilderness but you don't think of it in the contiguous united states as being a thing like in california there are plenty of places that are pretty far off the grid but there's always some little road back in there Mm -hmm. central idaho completely completely untracked like there's a there are places in idaho where you could die in the wilderness and no one would ever know you had existed but but there are places like that in Washington, too, which is always surprising. Anyway, this group of people went down and they bought like 126 acres together as a group. They all went in on it. Like it how much would something like that cost if you had to well, guess? Not that much, frankly. 
like um, like no, 10k no, 100,000k i mean what you know i think probably everybody in the group put in i don't know what 20,000 bucks maybe right. but for that much land that's that's crazy 126 acres there's a there's a there's a creek there's a hillside a creek there's like a creek. is that a creek there, yeah there's like it's sort of yeah i would is call that the it, same thing a crick and a creek are very similar to one another. I would use a different term. A, a creek, I would say, was a fairly fast-moving um, little year-round rocky bottom. Sort of, there are some criteria that a creek has. Okay. A crick is more <laughs> of a, you know, it's a, any one of those conditions may not be met in a crick it might be dry part of the year it might be it might have a grassy bottom it might it might not be fast running and i would describe this property as having more of a crick but it also has a swamp uh, it has a bridge it has beautiful stands of aspen um vine maples it was logged 25 years ago so all of the all of the fir trees and the and the cedar trees are all kind of at a certain height they're not small but they're not mature it's on a it's on a big hillside it kind of encompasses almost an entire ridge anyway these this group of people bought this property together as a sort of communal effort and they built that open air cookhouse place gathering place together and then each of them went off into the woods and built their own little cabin and how some far, of the ca- how far are it, would it be between the different cabins some of the, it varies so some people wanted their cabin to be closer in uh so that they didn't have far to walk didn't have far to stumble at night and some of the people wanted to be more secluded and went off and um some people built cabins in places where there were where they had a territorial view. Other people wanted to be more in the forest. So, so there, just exactly like Minecraft. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So there are six cabins, let's say, built out of a variety of scrounged materials. All of them sort of more or less I mean, some are, are, are very nicely appointed. Some of them are more ramshackle. Um, and there are privies. No one has, uh, there's no, like, the, there is a well in addition to the, uh, the, the crick. And then there's a, a kind of common garden where there are pigs and ducks and geese. And there are lots of dogs and also cats. It sounds like a shanty town. It's a little bit of a shanty town that is, that's also sort of governed by a utopian vision of how 10 couples can live together. Not all. I mean, it's no one lives there. I guess a couple of people live there year round. But most of the little shanties are are weekend cabins, 
and whoever shows up there on the weekend is there and, and you can, you know, you bring your friends or obviously the, uh, the big common area is huge. So you could have, you could have a party there with 300 people. Yeah. It sounds like it, but you know, there's gardens and, and there are some of the people are experimenting with learning to grow shiitake mushrooms and there are enclosures and they're making improvements to the land, but also trying to do it in a way that's that uh, takes into account contemporary thinking on invasive species and how, you know, how you make improvements to the land without, without converting the land from its natural or, or uh, you know, like healthiest state. And obviously it's been clear cut. So it's, it's, uh, it, it has been interrupted and now these people are trying to steward the land. Let's, let's say. So yeah, I went up there for, for a little bit and just kind of stayed in some ramshackle cabin out in the, out in the woods with a, uh, with a, with an oil lamp and, and we sat and played poker in, until late in the night. Is there electricity or is it all just, you know, you want to bring a little lamp to see, you could do a, a bonfire, keep warm. There are various um, levels of solar power being accomplished. So <laughs> for the cookhouse area, there's a very sophisticated solar system that is connected to a bank of batteries that powers the, the Viking freezer and overhead lights. And, you know, it's, it's very sophisticated sort of uh, for a, particularly for a open air structure. It has a whole infrastructure built in. And there are a couple of the houses that have pretty good solar arrangements and then there are others where the first time the wind blew whatever their uh half-assed solar thing that they bought at Lowe's whatever they had you know strapped up on the roof it blew right off and then they just went they're just using oil lamps right um and oil lamps are great i don't know how, the last time you lived in a world where your light came from an oil lamp but they're really wonderful uh, and we don't actually need electricity as much as we think we do. An oil lamp will light your house just fine. I mean, they're they're obviously really dangerous and burn your house down if you're not careful. But I like the light from a from an oil lamp. So I was con- I was perfectly content. Yeah, it sounds like you were having your time out there. I was, yeah. And then you know, at night you hear the coyotes get going and the. And the dogs get into it with the coyotes, and when you're when you really hear a, a whole hillside of coyotes light up, it's a very it's very unsettling. It's 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 really really cool. We used to live near a place where you could hear the coyotes, and if you're not like the first time you hear it when you move to a place, and and you you think is are there wolves? Is it the apocalypse? What's going on? Yeah, they're really screaming. Love it though. It's it's one of those things that just either you love it or you hate it, and I love it. Yeah, I do too. I liked it a lot. So I was doing that, 
I was doing that with some people. One of one of the so of my friends who went up to um went up to the woods. One of them is a uh, is a fireman who is a I guess a medic. He's a medic for the Seattle Fire Department. One of them is an an artist, an oil painter, professional oil painter. One of them owns a a small handful of restaurants. And uh, one of them was visiting from New York City where he is also sort of a, a gallery owner slash art, theater, theater art type person. So the conversation was interesting. It was, um, it was a good, good little break, but a good little break from my, uh, from my normal life, which is highly also, stressful uh, and yeah, also busy. Sort of, sort of just seems like a break all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I mean, what do you do mainly when you're out there? Like during, during the time you're out there, do you think of it as sort of a camping trip? Is it like an outdoorsy kind of a thing? Do you have a machete? with you or what is it do you what are your expectations when you're going there are you in a sleeping bag are you on a cot do you wash do you have a place to to you know to clean up do you are you hunting for your own food is it out of a can i mean what's it like it's a lot of questions all yeah, at once i mean i'm trying to figure this thing out you know these when are you things the- like on tv when you see someone t- call, calling someone else on the phone and they're sitting there having a conversation like okay well what do you think they're, okay good and then they don't say goodbye they just hang up the phone oh, and that's right. normal in TV. And you wonder to yourself like, well, that doesn't seem realistic because nobody does that in real life. I kind of want the real life details from your trip of, I was there. I talked to someone. It was a good time. We heard coyotes. I want to get into the details of what happened. Like what were the, what were the meals like? How are they prepared? Did you have mm-hmm. coffee in the morning? Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of good questions. Well, uh, so I knew there's a danger in a situation like this of going in overprepared, which is to say that if you are somebody like me who has prepared innumerable survival bags that your friends can say, Hey, let's go up to my, you know, my cabin in the wild land. Yeah. And you can, you know, start throwing survival gear in a bag where you show up, and you've got a machete, let's say, just to use your example. Right. And then you realize that everyone else there is in penny loafers <laughs> because, because they think of this as their vacation house and you have overdone it. So it's a, it's a delicate balance, but you also don't want to be in a situation like that where you are sleeping in the woods and you do suddenly need a knife and you don't have one. And then you're the city slicker who's trying to cut a piece of rope with a butter knife and you feel like a dummy because at home you have all this stuff and you should have brought it. So I brought a, a a carefully curated group of tools, a buck knife, a small uh, sort of fork spoon, just in case a, um, you know, the, the exact right amount of wool, garments so that if it got cold you could layer them into a into the you know a good costume mm-hmm. where you're you're not sitting there shivering but also you're not the guy who is in a in a 20 below down parka 
sitting around a campfire with a bunch of people in polo shirts, right? I mean, you have to, you have to figure out, I have been on both sides of this where I've showed up to a thing in penny loafers and a polo shirt. And then it got to be 11 degrees at night. And you know, and I'm, I don't have my stuff and I, and I feel I'm freezing and I feel like a dummy, but I've also pulled a machete out at a party and said, let's go clear some, let's clear, <laughs> clear a path through the woods. Right. And everybody else is like, well, there's a path right here. That's like brick. We could just take that. <laughs> and then you're like, I've, I'm the guy with the machete. Right. right. But uh, so I knew, I knew what I was getting into. Um, and uh, the, the one dissent we had was that the guy that owns the restaurants brought some Cajun shrimp in a, in a food service style bucket and he brought some pork loin and he was going to, you know, make this, this, um, series of really delicious meals. There's, you know, there's ga- a gas stove there. So he was going to do all this cooking. We had eggs and bacon for breakfast. And I was like, well, yeah, but we need some, we need some wieners. And everybody kind of looked at me and they were like, well, what do we need wieners for? We got, pretty much every meal planned out. And I was like, what are you talking about? We're going out to the woods. Right. Even if we're staying in little, even if we're staying in cabins, there's still going to be a fire. And if there's a fire, we should have some wieners. There's, there's going to come a moment in the night when (laughs) the dinner is long in our past and everybody's sitting around drinking beers and telling ghost stories. And we're going to want to put some wieners on some sticks. This is just, this is, it's not even about the food. It's just, this is just some, some, uh, unconscious knowledge. Right. Here. And, uh, everybody just blew me off. And then when we, when we did stop at a gas station, I guess I felt a little, I guess I was a little pouty and I was like, fine, you know what? I won't get any wieners and let's see how you guys feel about it. Right. And there was a moment where some wieners would have been appropriate, but we, but it wasn't, it wasn't a dire situation. It wasn't like we were sitting around whittling uh, like wiener sticks with no wieners. Right. It, it, I would have had to force the issue. In fact. Um, so when you go somewhere like this and also remembering the episode of back to work where you subbed for Merlin and talked about your trip, recent trip overseas, it seems to me like you are just as comfortable in a new and uncertain location with many less uh, of the things that you're used to having, fewer of those things, as you are in your own home normally. Like this doesn't feel like a big, you're not doing without, mm-hmm. or if you are doing without, it's not, it doesn't have a real effect on you. Whereas I know a lot of people and I would no longer include myself in this group, but there was a long time in my life where I would definitely have been in this group where you feel like you're doing without when you're staying in like a really nice hotel in a big city. Right. Because you don't have your pillow. You don't have your pillow. You don't have your whatever insert, whatever the things are that you feel like you need to have to be happy. I th- I feel like a long, long, long time ago, I got acquainted with the idea that modern life was kind of, pr- 
predicated on building up dependencies in people, that that was the capitalist model and that was the American model, that that we were building up dependencies on things and we came to rely on not just technology but on these security blankets and that I didn't want that. I wanted to be less vulnerable because it seemed to me that you that with every with everything you became dependent upon you were just in a prison of that because they could once you were hooked they could change the price of that thing or the availability of it or what would happen if if um if they weren't available anymore i'm you know i'm naturally i have a stockpiler impulse if i decide that that a, that a thing is really useful. You know, like I remember one time I found a, there was a, no, I'm embarrassed to even say it, but I go through these phases where I'm like, this is the perfect pair of shoes. Why would I ever want a different pair of shoes? And I know other people have done this. I'm not alone in this. Chris Walla once bought 15 pairs of, of this exact same converse because he was afraid that they were, it was right at the moment where converse was, was outsourcing their manufacturing to Asia and Chris didn't want to buy Asian converse. He wanted American converse. And so before they were all gone, he went and bought, you know, he bought a closet full of identical shoes so he could be assured that he would always have these shoes that he needed. And, um, and honestly, when I look back the day that they stopped making Levi's 501, unwashed shrink to fit jeans in America the day that they shipped started making those in Mexico or wherever they I mean now they make them all over the world and now they don't even I can't even find what used to be the flagship jean of Levi's now it's so confusing I don't even buy them anymore because I can't I can't make my way through there like well do you want you know, do you want black wash or do you want silver wash on your, and I'm like, I don't want any of that. I want the jeans that you made for gold panners back in, uh, 1849. And they're like, well, do you want like the gold pan deluxe model or do you want the X, 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 X model? And I'm like, no, fuck you. None of those things are real. <laughs> so I just stopped buying <laughs> Levi's. Yeah. But, but the day that they stopped making them in America and stopped just having the like, original just stupid jeans i should have gone to sears and bought 80 pairs i mean that's the one of those things i regret but otherwise like yeah oh i was saying i I bought a cup i bought a couple of pairs of shoes one time because i found them and they were perfect and they were a limited edition shoe they it was built in built in that you're not going to be able to get these Mm -hmm. if you like these if if you become dependent on these if these are your shoe one day they won't be here and so I was fooled by that, and I bought three pairs of these shoes. And then I wore one pair. I'm still wearing that pair. It's like 12 years later. I'm still wearing the first pair. I've got two pairs. Up When I'm 95 years old, I'll take that third pair out of the box <laughs> right. and be like, I still got a pair of these fuckers. <laughs> but every other thing, every other attempt that the, because it all feels, it all feels both coerced and like, like all everyone is in collusion with one another to agree that if you don't, you know, that, that, that 
the, the line between necessity and luxury just keeps getting pushed further and further. And all these things that were luxuries to my grandfather are now necessities to me. I can't abide it. And so, so are you to, saying that you sort of in, will intentionally try to do without something or a whole category of things from your life so that you don't, you won't become dependent on it? Well, or even if I regularly use them and, you know, even if I'm not denying myself, I mean, I do do a certain amount of putting on the hair shirt and denying myself nice things. But a lot of that has to do with punishing myself for being bad. But I'm always conscious when I use a thing. We get to circle back to that. When, when I'm using a thing, I'm always conscious that it can go away. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, that's why I have this sense of like, what are the necessities? And I do think that like a knife, a knife is one of the first tools. That anybody, I mean, it was necessary enough that people took the time to sit and make them out of shale. Right. uh, Or to, you know, to hone a rock so that you could use it as a cutting tool. Like that seems like humans have agreed over thousands of years, a knife is something it's nice to have. And we have nice ones now. And there's, I mean, it's not like knife technology is really continuing leaps and bounds. I feel like all those carbon fiber fiber knives are actually like a step in the wrong direction. Yeah. But a good knife, boy, you're, you can't go wrong having one of those around. Do you have like a knife that you would recommend to someone who's looking into this, who would want to get into this? There are so many great knives. And for years I carried one in my pocket all the time. And then I lost three or four of them to TSA. Mm -hmm. And, became embittered and stopped carrying one, you know, stopped having it be part of my pocket change. But my dad had a knife in his pocket every day of his life. Um, you know, he would, and he over time graduated to carrying kind of a smaller Swiss army knife that had three or four different tools on it. But, you know, he would pull that knife out and solve all kinds of problems because he happened to have a knife and, for a long time, I carried Spyderco knives uh, that had a sort of serrated edge. And, you know, over time, when you work them, you can kind of you get them so that they're, they're meant to be open one-handed, but you can get them so you can kind of almost flick, flick them out, open. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I, 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 at some point 25 years ago, I realized that you could still buy switchblades in Italy. <laughs> You can't, uh, the ones that you can get in Mexico, I weren't very, I wasn't very interested in, but there are Italian switchblades that are just beautiful, perfect pieces of sort of classic um, gimmickry. Are they but, illegal to have or illegal to buy or sell? Well, I think it, it varies from state to state. Like I think in Oregon, you can actually buy a switchblade. I've never tried it in Oregon, but I think the the rules are different from place to place. I know they're illegal in New York city, for instance, because you have to tap down on the, you know, the gang warfare, right? Uh, all that switchblade based gang warfare. That's plaguing the, the outer boroughs, <laughs> right? Because, you know, without the switchblade, you couldn't, you couldn't be in a gang. 
No, how could you? How I mean, could you, you couldn't get in- do anything bad? Sure. Think about uh, think about the beat it video. <laughs> you know, all those guys, they're all just like swinging chains at each other and <laughs> switchblades right. and stuff. Yeah. So I carried a switchblade for a long time. You don't strike uh, me as a switchblade guy. Well, it's I, I think you're right. I you mean, strike over- me as one of two. I'll just I'll say one of two kinds. Either you've got a very traditional sort of buck knife that you always carry in the same position in the same pocket so that it eventually wears the shape into the gene. Or I could see you as, I don't, I don't know what, is it a Bowie knife? I'm thinking of what Rambo would have used and you would just wear it either on somehow on your boot or in your boot. Yeah. Or right on the belt brandishing it. Those are tricky in town to carry a Bowie knife. (laughs) Yeah. Um, the switchblades that I carried were not, uh, they were kind of special. They were made out of brass. The, the metal was, was, was brass, not, um, you know, not like stainless or aluminum. And the wood was, was a kind of mahogany. So it was, they were dark brown and brass. And over time they wore and got a, got like a, a you know, brass takes on that that uh, patina. Mm. And so, you know, they didn't, when you, when you, um, when you would just look at it in your hand, it didn't look like, like a switchblade comb that you would get at a drugstore. It had, yeah. a, it, they had a, uh, they were delightful knives and I still have them. I just don't carry them around anymore. And you're absolutely right that I do now carry a buck knife, which is maybe, maybe a little bit, it's maybe one size bigger than it's actually perfect. It's, it's, it's just, it's just enough bigger than the, than the switchblades that I used to carry that every time I pull it out and open it, I'm like, Ooh, now that's a knife. (laughs) Is it an, a a legit like buck brand? It is a, it's actually the, it's a buck like 150 year anniversary knife or something like that, or 50 year anniversary knife. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a buck and it is, it's sharp enough that it is a danger. It's a danger even to be its owner and master because it can, (laughs) it can cut you accidentally if you're not careful. And if it does cut you, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be an issue right away. Right. It's it's a bad cut. But for, you know, all the rock and roll years, I, I'm not proud to say, but I'm not embarrassed either to say that I carried a fucking leather man. Um, I carried a leather man and a mag light. <laughs> that was I your, I, that was your IT years. Yeah. Just because, you know, you're all of a sudden you're standing on stage in the dark, trying to fu- looking behind an amp, trying to figure out which wire came loose and you need both a light and a pair of pliers and potentially a knife. And, when you're touring and you're doing your own tech that happens enough times where you're just like you know what fuck it i'm just going to carry and it wasn't i didn't carry a giant mag light i carried one of those small mag lights little mag light a little and a leather man the, the you know the original leather man but i lost a couple of those to tsa because you don't think about it you you get in the you get in the habit of carrying it with you every day and then you you're at some point on the tour, 
and you have to fly to Europe or something. And all of a sudden you're standing at the airport and you're, and you're screwed, right? You've checked your bags already. It's just like, fuck you, TSA assholes. I do not believe you are keeping us safe. I believe you are. Can you use one of those little airport lockers, put in the airport locker, come get it when you get back or, well, you're not, you're not necessarily returning to the same airport when you're in, in my line of work. And also, (laughs) (laughs) also, uh, you you never think about that because you're because it doesn't come up until you're standing right at the there. X-ray machine and yeah. you've been waiting in line to get through and your flight is leaving in 15 minutes and and I honestly I think the TSA was just in the knife collecting business I don't think they were doing anything else they were just you know they were trying to disarm America <sighs> think about all the great switchblades they have they didn't they don't even have to prosecute people they just take them at the airport right so. You know, now lately, the thing that I'm because I always carry a I always carry a pen. I carry a space pen in my wallet. I carry a knife, and now lately, I have started to try to find the perfect spork, the perfect spoon fork knife that you can kind of carry with you, like a fold one that folds up. Not necessarily, although maybe one that folds up, but I found one the other day that's made out of like hard impact plastic, but, but not so hard that it isn't, doesn't have a little flex to it. And it's a spoon and a fork and a knife all in one. And it's brightly colored, which kind of appeals to me. And it feels like something that you could just slip into your pocket or your bag and forget that it's there. But then let's say it's let's say the apocalypse happens and then it's just you and a gyro captain trying to figure out how to get into a can of dog food and the gyro captain, what does he have? You know, he's got a fucking big wooden spoon. He's an idiot, <laughs> Seriously. But, you can o- but you can open the can with a knife and then you've got your magic like a uh, spoon fork knife. Yeah. And you know, and I love a, I love a cold can of SpaghettiOs almost more than any other thing in the world. To just eat SpaghettiOs right That's out of the can. such a childhood thing. Do so you get the kind with the meatballs or no meatballs? No, no, no meatballs. Because no. I don't just, think those were SpaghettiOs in a true sense. Once you put the meatballs in it, no, it's something else. It's like a grilled cheese sandwich. If you put tomatoes on it or tuna fish, it's a melt. It's not grilled cheese. Thank you. Thank you. Somebody said that. Somebody the other There's day. There's a big was, Reddit thing about that. Oh, really? Yeah. I was in a restaurant and they were like, you know, one of the four food I was a fancy fancy nouveau restaurant one of the four food items was grilled cheese but it but you could have it with all these other things i was like well then it's not a grilled cheese here you're selling melts right which is fine right nothing wrong with a melt love a melt yeah let's call it what it is right it's a different thing let's take a second to thank our first sponsor it's pond five if you're producing content online there's no better creative resource then Pond5, from video clips and motion graphic templates to music and sound effects, Pond5 has all the amazing media you need to perfect your creative productions without exhausting your budget or your time. Pond5 supports a global community of artists with some of the highest payouts in the industry. And what that means is not only will you find the highest quality and the most diverse content, but you know that you will be supporting independent creators all around the world. They provide a royalty-free license that lets you use your media whenever and wherever you need it. 
It's fast and affordable, and they have a code here just for the listeners of Roadwork that will give you 25% off your next purchase. So the code that you want to use is Roadwork, all one word, and that will get you 25% off your next purchase, whatever it is. Pond5, P-O-N-D, and then the number 5, Pond5.com is the place to go. Roadwork, get 25% off. Check them out. Anyway, so yeah, I do, I do feel like there are some things that are necessities, but all that other stuff, for instance, you know, all the grooming products or, or the, the idea of hot water or the idea that, uh, you know, and I'm allergic to feathers. Like I don't like to, I cannot sleep on a feather pillow because I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'll, and I'm, you know, and my throat is constricted and my nose is running and, I'm, you know, a, a feather pillow will make me miserable. And I'm, and I, I hate myself a little bit for having that kind of nebbishy vulnerability, like <laughs> allergic to feathers, really Poindexter. Uh, but yes, I am. I am a Poindexter and it's probably because I, I grew up eating macaroni and cheese and tab and I didn't develop the right immunity to things. Right. But so if I go into a hotel and they've got feather pillows and the thing about hotels is the fancier they are, the more likely they are to be like, there's a beautiful feather pillows. And I just, you know, <laughs> and I have to be the one that's like hypoallergenic pillow. Right, please. right. Foam or whatever. Yeah. But other than that, I try to, I try to, it, it, it's no longer conscious. It's no longer that I'm trying. I tried at a certain point when I was younger to not need anything. Right. To like push yourself and say, well, what if I don't have that thing that I think that yeah. I need so bad? What happens to me? Will I die? Well, is it instant death or can I survive without it and maybe still have a good time? Right. I never once died in those situations. And so I realized that I did not need any of those things. And, and that, and the thing is there are so many things in the category of want that I want desperately, you know, like I want ice cream right now. I want ice cream all the time. And I absolutely want a king size bed that is, you know, that's warm and quiet and, you know, all these things that we, that I want just as much as the next person. But if I get somewhere and it's like, Oh, you're sleeping on a cot and it's next to an air conditioner and the window doesn't shut. And there is like a, a highway interchange right outside the window. Oh, and also two guys are going to be arguing about duct tape at four o'clock in the morning, right outside the window. <laughs> you know, I don't want any of those things, but can I figure out a way to roll back over and go back to sleep? Yeah, I can. And, and, and that's just, I guess it was said best to me by, uh, one of the sainted rock and roll characters whose name is Ira Elliott. He is the drummer of the band, not a surf. And at one point we were on tour with not a surf. We toured with not a surf quite a bit over the years. And at one point Ira, came with us instead of sticking with his bandmates and maybe we were in Canada. I think we might've even been in Canada and somehow, you know, Ira got separated from the herd and he was partying with us in such a way that it became night 
and it was unclear where the rest of Not a Surf and their entourage had gone to. And Ira now was stuck with us. And Not a Surf are, you know, they were always a bigger band than the Long Winters and used to traveling with a certain degree of sort of, not luxury, but, you know, they, they, they knew what they were doing. They had, they had certain standards. And at this point, the Long Winters were still sleeping like two guys to a room. Um, you know, on the, on our early tours, the first two years, it was four guys to a room, mm. two, you know, each two guys to a bed. And when we were five dudes in the band, it was two guys to a bed and one guy on the floor. And we were staying in not very nice hotels. So it was, it was, you know, pretty trying. I mean, I remember the first time we graduated to like each guy gets his own bed. That was like a big deal, right? Two rooms. We each get our own bed. Everybody was like, what? No way. Our own bed. (laughs) I mean, we, we, you know, we traveled like that pretty much until the end. It was, it was rare that we would be in a situation where everybody would get their own room. That's pretty, that's pretty expensive. But anyway, so we show up into the hotel and Ira is with us and he's like, I'll just crash with you guys. And I was like, Oh, okay. We get up to the room. We survey this kind of dismal scene. There's two queen size beds in an econo lodge on the edge, you know, on the, on the side of the highway somewhere, you know, in on Ontario, and um, and I'm looking at. I'm like, well, Ira. I mean, I guess you can sleep in. You can sleep in my bed, or I mean, you can sleep. Or I'm trying to figure it out for him. And he goes, Oh, what? No problem. And he grabs. I think he grabs his coat, folds it into a pillow, and lays down in the hallway between the bathroom and the front door. And you know, it lays down in his clothes. And I was like, are you sure? Do you need a blanket or something? Are you, do you need a pillow or anything? And he was like, he looked up and said, what? No, I'm a professional. And then he was asleep. Oh my God. And it was like, oh my fucking God, you are a professional. Like that is a level of professionalism that I aspire to. Seriously. Complete, you know, completely self-contained, not resentful in the least did not sit there and kind of say like, "Mm, well, who's going to get the bed or, you know, didn't like do any kind, had no expectations of any kind. And that was the thing above all else, above all the other things that he didn't need. What he most didn't need was any kind of special treatment. He had no, he did not expect that he would be cared for. He was fine. And I was just like, that's ninja level rock and roll. Seriously. And, um, you know, and I already felt like I was practicing some ninja level rock and roll, but I, uh, but you know, no way, no way was I at that level of like, he woke up in the morning and, you know, and already look, you know, the fact that he was rumpled and his hair was must and he had slept on the floor in his coat just made him look cooler. <laughs> and he was just ready to go down to the to the buffet at the Hampton Inn and eat some 
bacon out of a, you know, out of a, a bedpan or whatever it is that they have <laughs> at those places. And it's just like fucking this guy. And you know, and you, and the and would you consider John, do you consider yourself to be like a, a good sleeper? Are you a good sleeper? Do you have an easy time? Do you have a good relationship with sleep? I have a strange relationship because, um, and my sister and I are, are exactly the same in this regard. Uh, which is that neither one of us wants to go to sleep. We will do anything to avoid going to sleep. Well, you know, I'm up routinely four or five o'clock in the morning doing nothing, you know, sorting my daughter's socks by, by size, um, you know, taking old jelly jars and, and almost like, tw- uh, like tweaking in a way. Very much, very much. Just don't want to go to sleep. And then, then lying in bed and reading until, until my eyes are closing, like until I'm nodding off and forcing myself back awake to read to the end of the page or the end of the chapter, just avoiding going to sleep at all costs. For what reason? I do not know. And my sister and I have talked about this a lot because she's the same way. And it's like, what do we not want to go to sleep about? What, what do we fear on the other side of that veil? But it's not like, it's not fear. I'm not, I'm not apprehensive about going to sleep. I just try to, to not. I try to get as much, you know, until it's ridiculous, until especially times when you have to get up at seven or eight o'clock in the morning and it's 4.30 in the morning and you're right. trying to read to the end of the chapter. You're like, what am I doing? Right. Go to sleep for Christ's sake. But then on the other side, when it's time to wake up, I do not want to wake up. I don't want to wake up. I don't want to get out of bed. I do not. I will roll back over and go back to sleep a hundred times before I finally drag my ass out of bed. And you know, Susan said it. Susan, my sister said it interestingly just the other day. She was like, I have to, I cannot go to sleep. I have to fall asleep. Hmm. And I cannot, you know, I, I can't wake up. I have to be woken up. And it's just like, wow, I don't know what that is either, but I have that exact thing. And those people that, you know, that wake up at six o'clock in the morning, rain or shine, whether they have to go to work or not. Um, I don't, I mean, my mom is like that. She wakes up at four 30 in the morning and loves it. Gets up, reads the newspaper, makes breakfast, goes for a walk cherishes that time. she but, doesn't does she need an alarm or anything like that no, no 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 and the thing is i have an internal alarm i can uh before i go to bed i can say like you got to get up at nine tomorrow and pretty much will wake up at nine just just by saying it to myself but i don't i don't prefer to do it so i used to have that same exact ability back in my college years and maybe early mid twenties, I'd be say, okay, tomorrow I need to wake up six fifteen or seven or whatever the time was. No alarm. I would still set an alarm, but I would wake up almost to the minute. I have an uncanny ability. One of my very special talents is I have a very, very good sense of knowing exactly, usually within a one to two minute range, if not exactly of what time it is. 
at any given isn't that, time. Isn't that interesting? I, I, I've known other people that can do this too, but like, you know, I can feel the difference between 2.56 and 2.58 in the afternoon. Like, I'm very good at that. I don't know now, wh- when that happened, but it's uh, weird. Now, that is remarkable, that degree of specificity. I can get pretty close. I mean, I can look and say, like, oh, it's 11.15, and I look, and it's 11.06, and I go, yeah, good job. Right. But um, <clears throat> but between 2.56 and 2.58, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty that's, good at that. I, but I can't, sure. only if I'm in my regular kind of routine. If I'm out of it, if I'm traveling, if I'm in a different time zone, forget it. I'm I'm lost. Yeah, right. I guess, yeah, you get you get so that you have a kind of um you get in touch with your your native self you're, right you're in tune with your environment yeah but you know listening to you talk about going to the kibbutz and you know living living out there and, and i i really remember for many many years of my life it was a struggle for me anxiety wise whenever it came to going somewhere where i knew i would be out of my my uh, element. And I think a big part of that for me was that I drew at the time and for many years, a lot of the comfort that I felt or the stability that I felt. Uh, I think I, it came from my feeling, not like I had control over my environment, but that I could create my own little mini environment inside of whatever bigger environment I was going to be in. And then that, that would make me feel more kind of comfortable so what, that if, if i knew what was behind that what what, what what have you thought about like what what was motivating you to need that kind oh yeah of, yeah what was it well the therapist helped me figure that out hmm. uh and that it was is this something you've talked about at length on other programs i don't think i've ever really talked about it it's uh i don't think it's come up uh, I think it was a good. Well, when I was when I was a little kid, mm-hmm. my parents got divorced around the age of four or five, I guess. Uh, a vulnerable time, right? And it wasn't so much I think that they got divorced that was upsetting to me because, like, they had never really gotten along, and I kind of knew that they didn't get along. So that was just kind of a thing. And when they said we're getting a divorce, it wasn't like it wasn't a surprise to me. It wasn't. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, someone gave me this book that's like, your parents are getting divorced, t- Timmy, you know, <laughs> like, you know, it's something like that. And, uh, and, and I remember reading it and then, like, the th- thing was, it's not, it's not your fault. And I'm like, oh, why would it be my fault? My parents don't get along, <laughs> you know, like, that has not that much, to, like, that's not, of course, it's not my fault, you know, I knew, I knew that. So, mm-hmm. I, in that sense, that wasn't the part that I think led to, or was as much responsible for feeling this way later in life as much as I think after the divorce, we wound up moving a lot and mm. wound up moving to a number of different places, none of which were very good. We're talking about like Philadelphia in the seventies is not, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it wasn't, it wasn't like we were living in nice places with good apartments. It was really crummy stuff that was like, you know, when it gets dark, you, you, you lock all eight locks and you don't look out the windows, you know? Um, so that and the, and the moving around a lot and changing schools a lot, I think something 
happened there that led me to start to to feel, I guess, a, some kind of insecurity if my surroundings weren't right, you know. And uh, and and that kind of began. I noticed that around that time, I'm talking about maybe like nine, ten years old, is when the sort of OCD stuff started. And I think it's all tied in together. And um, and so I, what this eventually led to later in life was this desire to to kind of have a, especially around sleeping, especially around creating that kind of predictable, knowable environment for myself, it led to anxiety around travel because I wanted to be completely prepared for like any contingency that might happen. So the packing would become a major issue and of like, well, I need, you know, I need to make sure that I have everything, you know, like every, so I would, I would try to find and this coping mechanism did not ever work, by the way. But I, any anything that I could get that was like a miniature version of the regular thing that I would have, so I would have that, you know. And as so I would I would try to be prepared for it. Well, you know, I better bring some neosporin because you never know. And I'll bring sure. three or four kinds of band aids because you never know. You, you know, never you know. might you might get somewhere you need a band aid, but you don't want the big one. And then what if you need it? You don't, who needs a Band-Aid for one day? If you need a Band-Aid, you need a Band-Aid for multiple days. So I better Good bring point. multiple ones of the multiple sizes. And how am I going to transport them in a way that keeps them sanitary and dry? Well, I need some kind of little thing to put them in. That's mm-hmm. just for Band-Aids. You know, multiply that across all of these different things. And, and you know, and of course I had a, an anxiety of flying. I had all this, all this stuff. Happy to report I don't have any of that anymore. And now I kind of maybe go too far the other way, which is how what is the the minimum number of shirts that I need to bring on this without it just being gross, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've gotten mm-hmm. so, so you much You just throw two now. scoops of peanut butter in the bottom of a bag. <laughs> Sorry. I'm done. That's my food. And But I really, and in kind of the same way that I got very much into into Buddhism for I mean I'm still consider myself a Buddhist but I was had a very 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 serious Buddhist practice for a while where I got really and this was kind of the answer for me was focusing on the impermanence of everything right and the fact that as much preparedness as I tried to achieve that I was still never really that prepared and at the same time like I was never going to the Sahara. I was going to like Chicago, you know, <laughs> and, and, and they have convenience stores in yeah. Chicago. Yeah, I've do. heard they sell, they sell toilet paper and toothpaste. There. Right. You can get some of the basic things you need to survive. If you forget, God forbid, you know, you forget your underarm deodorant and you have to buy some and maybe it's a different brand. What will I do? Whatever will I do with a different brand of underarm deodorant? And you know, that I kind of was able to put that into perspective and get to the heart of the issue which was, you know, why why was I so attached to something that was going to change this impermanent condition of things have to be a certain way. And yeah, I used to have so many so many hang-ups about things like that that took a long time for me to kind of process through and work through to the point where 
you know, having that feeling that you're talking about of just like kind of rolling. I'm not going to, I'm not going to act like I'm, you know, I could do what, what your, uh, what the band guy did and just roll, you know, roll up his jacket and sleep on the floor. I mean, I wish I could do that. I'm way higher maintenance than that, but compared to the way that I used to be in and still compared to the way a lot of my friends are when they travel, I'm way, way, way more casual about it now. And it's something that I really had to work. Like I had to achieve, this was my goal, like to work to the point where I could say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going on a trip in a day or two. I guess I, I guess I should think about packing pretty soon. And not stressing out about it and being able to get on a plane and not worry about it, not think of, about anything relating to that, you know, and get a smaller and smaller carry on and bring less and less and, and do just fine, you know. And, and you're comfortable that way now. Very comfortable. Like I like like it. I like it. Yeah. Because I came from this place of weeks in advance, you know, well, I guess I guess I better start taking the Xanax now, you know. Weeks in advance. Yeah, like two weeks is what the uh, the doc recommended. That you the, the doctor said two weeks before a flight, he recommends you start taking Xanax. Yeah, that's how bad it was. It was really bad. It was uh, really bad. Like it I, does I sound bad. it was really bad. Like it was. I would I would start really getting into what would be familiar to OCD people. Like you get into kind of a a, a thought loop where you kind of start like circling. And thinking about what could happen and playing out every single what if scenario. We're talking about like getting on a, on a three hour flight and staying in a hotel for three or four nights. That would right. be enough to start really stressing me out ahead of time. And I would start trying to think of ways maybe I could get out of the trip somehow. Maybe I wouldn't have to go. You know, it was bad. It was really bad. But uh, it turned out that uh, for me, the answer was like getting a Buddhist practice and like meditating seriously for a while and that really helped me figure out a lot of this stuff and you know it is really possible to change to change your your thinking and your mental habits it's really possible it's not easy it's very very i think for me it was very very hard uh but you can you can do it you know and getting to that point i love i love the concept of like not needing stuff and so i one thing that came out of this is that I lost any kind of sentimental attachment to physical items. I have, mm. right now, I can, I can say, without really any exceptions, I don't have any attachments to physical things. That isn't to say that I don't place value on physical things. Like my laptop, yeah, that's worth some money, and if I didn't have it or if it disappeared... I would need to get another one and that would cost money and that would that would be a problem. So it's not like I'm not saying I don't value items. I don't I do. I absolutely value physical things for what they're worth, but sentimental emotional attachment, I have no emotional attachment to anything. Nothing at all. There is not a wow. single item that I have that means anything to me. Um and you say, "Well, what about your kids? Like what if your kids drew you a picture? Wouldn't that mean something to you?" And uh, and, and that's where I get into kind of a, a little bit of a different space in that, yes, if my four-year-old, who is an outstanding artist, of course, I think so, uh, would draw something just for me and give it to me, I'm not going to like chuck, crumple it up into a ball and like chuck it in the trash. You know, I uh, wind up saving all of these things. And if they were suddenly to be gone, wouldn't, wouldn't I feel an emotion about them? I would, 
but I would because of the intent that was there when she gave it to me that she wanted me to keep it. I received it as a gift. I enjoyed it. I looked at it. I've probably spent more time than I ever would have in the past really looking at and appreciating this thing that my kid gave me. And I might one day want to reflect on this stage of her artistic progress, age four, and and not having the ability to do that might be something I would say, oh, well, I, w- I would have enjoyed that, but I can let go of that. And so with that as maybe the one small exception, and I used to have attachments to everything, oh, that old car, I sure did love that old car, or... Oh, I remember when I got that shirt, I was here and I did that thing. And, you know, like, I don't have any of that anymore. And I, I, that was a big liberating kind of a thing for me, too, because I was, I wouldn't say I was like hoarding stuff, but I was keeping a lot of crap that I didn't really need. And now, like, I often think, like, what are the things that I have that, that, uh, that all of my possessions, you know, well, I have some clothing that I wear. And I have like uh, crap I put in my hair in the morning to make it look reasonable. And I've got a toothbrush. Like those are the things that I have that I think of as mine. And nothing else is really mine. And I don't have any attachment to anything else. And if it was all just completely gone, I would feel freed by it being gone. And I've periodically gone on huge purges where I've gotten rid of tons and tons of stuff. And my wife would say, wow, you're so good at getting rid of stuff. How is it? I'm like, because. Because I don't like having it. (laughs) I would like to have as little stuff as possible. If there was a way I could just have like seven of the same shirt, you know, and and just wear the same thing every day, I absolutely would do it. Not weird. See, I mean, you and I are almost polar opposites in every one of these respects (laughs) because I have, I, I attach tremendous, um, emotional significance to objects i have sentimentality about really really dumb things and can remember the story of every single item i own and i sort of attach a i attach like i I anthropomorphize things oh like you can't throw it out poor poor little picture frame yeah, I mean, I don't do the picture frame. I'm not quite as bad as I used to be, but I mean, there were absolutely times where there would be some ripped pair of pants and I'd be like, but I can't give those away. I mean, <laughs> think of all the times we've had and the pants will be alone in the garbage can. <laughs> like I would, you know, I would bring myself to tears imagining <laughs> the broken cup. I was there, man. That was me. The, that yeah, was me. Yeah. Couldn't, can't, can't, couldn't, uh, couldn't live. But, um, you know, there there are a couple of different levels of dependency and at one level, at the at the surface level, I'm incredibly dependent on on the the insulating layer of garbage that I that I collect unto myself. You know, I, I mean I will sit I have too many blazers. Let's say, for instance, I decided decades ago that, you know, that I liked the blazer, a a, a man's coat. And so I started 
being at thrift stores and buying these things for a couple of bucks. And, and then, you know, I wear them. Then they have meaning to me because they, you know, I remember when I found them, I remember all the things I've done in them. And all of a sudden I look around my life and I have 24 blazers and I, I'm like, what am I doing with all these things? And the thing is they don't represent any real investment of money. They, they, you know, you probably paid more for your deodorant than I did for most of these jackets. <laughs> right. So it's not a money investment, although I do feel like they are worth money. You know, a lot of them are old and I make that mistake of thinking that they're worth money, even though, you know, there isn't really a market for them. I feel like there should be a market for them. I feel like there should be more men of discerning taste out there competing in the marketplace for 1950s late fifties, early sixties, uh, three button blazers. Mm -hmm. And I'm just hold, I'm hoarding these things until one day when people finally come to their senses and realizes that the realize that these are like the pinnacle of a, of a lost art. Mm -hmm. But anyway, in the meantime, I have 24 blazers. Well, so I look around and somebody, you know, uh, the people in my life are like, you need to clear some of these blazers out. You don't need all these fucking blazers. Yeah. And so I'll go and I'll, I'll, sort them all and it's just like well yeah sure this is a blue blazer and that is a blue blazer but do you see the little fleck of color in this blue blazer that's completely different than this solid blue blazer and the two are both absolute necessities you can't you couldn't give one away you know like at a at at the surface level of my life that is the kind of hell that i'm living in where i'm just Rounded by stuff that I mostly don't need and I can't get my head around. I, I look at the idea of like a man should have three suits and that's all. Those are all the suits he needs. And I'm like, wow, that would be amazing. Like, can you imagine how, how light and unencumbered you would feel? But then I was watching the Mr. Robot show mm-hmm. the other day. Great show. And the, the bad guy, the evil Dutch uh, chief technology officer of Evil Corp. Yep. There's a shot in episode three or four where he is in his walk-in closet and he has 150 shirts and probably 40 of them are just white dress shirts. And I looked at his closet and was like, oh, wow. Ooh. Look at all those shirts, mm-hmm. you know, and I just, and I, and I, and I'm, I'm kind of imagining that they're all really nice shirts and how nice they must be custom. Wouldn't that be nice if you could just have a whole closet full of Charvet shirts that are all $250 each custom made. I mean, I know, and I know that that is, uh, that that's a lie because at a deeper level in my life, I am prepared to walk out of the house with a knife and a flashlight and never return. And that, that comes from, and I, I, and see now that's something I think I don't think I could quite do. Well, and, 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 you know, uh, there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of stuff written about the current cultural fixation with vampires and zombies and, what that represents all the all the the hidden cultural anxieties uh, and preoccupations that zombies represent to us all 
Mm-hmm. But for people my age who grew up, particularly in Alaska, you know, imagining the apocalypse as a very real possibility, not a fantasy. It yeah. wasn't like, oh, I should have my zombie mobile. It was like, no, the Russians are coming. And when they come, it's going to be, you know, right behind a wave of like toxic atomic death. And only a few will survive. And those few will be living in a, in a scorched earth. And I, I couldn't imagine. I, I remember talking to other kids when I was young and hearing people say like, well, when, when the big one happens, when the, you know, when the bomb drops, I just want to go in a flash. You know, I just want to be one of the first ones to go because I do not want to deal with um, radiation sickness and scavenging for food and um, all the people that I know and love dead, you know, living in the burned out shell of a former civilization. I just want to go with the first explosion. And I remember even at 10 years old being incredulous at that and thinking like, what? No. Of course you want to survive. Of course you want to be one of the few hardy survivors who, you know, who live underground and who, um, who begin to rebuild civilization from the ashes and relearn how to, how to build hydroelectric dams. And, you know, like I, I, at 10 years old, I knew I wanted to live through the nuclear war, which I knew was coming Mm -hmm. and everything that I read and watched and all the information out there about how you were going to survive was that you did not want to be a drain on, you didn't want to be the, the person with a limp, right? Right. Like the group is moving now and it's a, you're, you're in a primitive hunter gatherer society again and you do not want to be the one who's who breaks his glasses and can't see because then you are you're a drag on everybody else and eventually they're going to leave you behind. Yeah. And so I I just tried to I tried to cleanse my soul of of anything that would make me be the weak link in a in a war party or a hunting party. And somehow, somehow those two things coexist in me. I can, at one level, still believe that, and and not just believe, but know to be true, that if I got done with this podcast and walked out the door of this uh, building and like never went home again and never saw another person that I knew, I would be fine. Like I, I wouldn't be maybe full of joy, I would miss my family and I would, but you know, that would be, that would be a sadness that would just went into the, went into the sadness file along with my other sadnesses. Right. But like I was, I am not going to be somebody that ends up sitting in a doorway, sobbing himself to death. But I also have a collection of all of, of dolls of every single U S president. And if somebody were to come and say, yeah, you got to get rid of these U S president dolls. Like they're, 
they're gumming up the works here. You're, <laughs> you can't, you can't get to the kitchen because the U.S. president dolls are taking up all the, you know, the, they're encroaching on the, on the path. I would be like, what? No, you can't take these U.S. president dolls are they're incredible. What? I mean, what if, what if my kid wants to know about the president someday? Like I've, I've got to have these U.S. president dolls. It's like a lot of dolls. <laughs> And, I mean, and I, it sounds like a lot of dolls. Somebody, my mom came over not very long ago and was like, you got to start getting rid of some of these globes. You got too many globes. I'm like, yeah, but every single one of those globes represents a different, his, different moment in the history of globe making. And she's like, wah, 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 wah. Like, I'm not <laughs> listening to you anymore. Yeah. Like this, this globe was, was, this globe was made before the invasion of Hungary, this scroll was made after the invasion of Hungary. Nobody gives a shit like that amount of knowledge. That amount of specific knowledge of things is not useful unless you want to be, unless you want to go into the globe trade, which you do not. So <laughs> the globe trade, you know, like there's a guy in New York city who is, who has a shop on the, I'm, I'm speculating now, but mm-hmm. I'm sure that this is true. He has a shop on the upper East side. It's probably on third Avenue or maybe it's on Lexington and it's, you have to buzz in and it's up two flights of stairs or it's a rickety freight elevator. And when you walk in, he's got his reading glasses down on the end of his nose and he's wearing a cardigan sweater and a tweed jacket over it. And he has a shop full of globes, vintage globes. And he knows all the same stuff that I know about him and more. He knows more than I do about globes. And he is also not really interested in talking to you about it because he's a curmudgeon who runs a globe shop and he's probably divorced and he's bitter and he went to Columbia probably a long time ago. <laughs> he got a pretty good picture of this guy. He's, but he's balding, <laughs> but he has a beard. He thought he was going to be an actor, but it never worked out. So he doesn't want to sit and talk to some yokel from Washington about globes. He wants to sell globes because long ago his profession turned from something he loved into just something he did. And so I don't even want to be him at all. I don't want to, I, I I'm, I'm afraid to even find his shop and go in and meet him and talk to him about clubs. Cause he's going to, he's going to be so sour that it's going to take some of the love away from him. So, but it doesn't change the fact that I have 20 plus globes and globes aren't small. No, some of my globes are big they're three feet across so i cannot reconcile that with with the you know with the constant preparation i make to survive a nuclear winter and rebuild civilization except maybe maybe they'll you know maybe i will be making the first new globe out of like birch bark post-apocalypse you'll be the guy you'll be the guy and i'm like listen children gather around as i tell you the story of the earth although it seems flat it's really round and here i'm going to make you a representation of that out of birch bark it's called a globe <laughs> and all of the you know by that point all the young warriors would be like the old man he's he, he knows not what he speaks the earth is flat it is clear from our from our survey and I'm like, don't know. Children, pay attention to me now. I am from before the firestorm. 
I know about the globes. And have you ever heard of the Soviet invasion of Hungary in 1956? It's very important that we remember these details. Okay, I think it's time for our second sponsor, Wealthfront. Wealthfront makes it easy for anyone to get access to world-class long-term investment management. It's an online automated service that invests your money for you. You know that you should be investing your money for the long term, for your family's financial health, and you probably wondered how you should do it, trying to do it yourself, especially the right academically proven way is complex and time-consuming, and you know you might have even thought about finding a professional, but the thing is, most investors that work with traditional advisors get charged huge fees, anywhere from 1% to 3% of what you've got under management, plus hidden fees for transactions and charges made to your account. Those add up quickly, and they eat right into your precious nest egg. Whether you're investing for retirement or a different long-term goal, Wealthfront automatically rebalances your portfolio and reinvests your dividends, all commission-free. You can see every trade that they make for you uh, in your dashboard, anywhere you go, your desktop or in your pocket with their mobile app. Go to wealthfront.com slash five by five to see your free personalized investment portfolio. You'll see the customized allocation they recommend. Just for five by five listeners, if you sign up to invest, they will manage your first $15,000 entirely free of charge for life. That means in addition to never paying commissions or any hidden fees, you also won't pay any management fees on that first $15,000 that you invest. So claim your offer today at wealthfront.com slash 5 by 5 And now I must read a disclaimer for you. For compliance purposes, I have to tell you that Wealthfront Inc. is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are offered through Wealthfront Brokerage Corporation, member FINRA and SIPC. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risks, and there is a possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wealthfront.com to read our full disclosure. Thank you very much to Wealthfront. Go check them out. I mean, there's something there's something that you have that I don't have to the same degree, and that is a fascination with uh, with with or for history. I'm interested in history, but I feel like that for you, it is a bit pervasive in the way that you think of things and relate to the world. And I think that continues and connects with your sentimental attachment to the, to things because they're part, they become part of your history. I'm just making an observation. You can tell me I'm way off base. Well, I was just uh, right before we talked and right before I was watching pizza rat, (laughs) I uh, had just gotten off the phone from doing an interview with a reporter from somewhere, Las Vegas newspaper who uh, wanted to talk to me about uh, a death dinner that I recently attended. (laughs) What is that? Well, uh, my good friend, Michael Hebb is a sort of chef empresario here in the Northwest who has for a long time been putting on these sort of what were originally called one pot dinners where he would make a big dinner in one big Le Creuset pot. Sounds awesome. And then he would invite, you know, 20 fascinating people and we would all sit around and eat this, big communal dinner and the, you know, lively conversation spilling wine into the middle of the night. You know, he's trying to create a scene 
And he's been very successful at doing it because even though the idea is like rife with pomposity, it also is true that he is able to invite interesting people to these things. The food is good and really great conversation does transpire. And one of his innovations was that he, as he, as he got better and better at the empresario side of his game, he would have these parties where he would invite 10 poor artists and 10 rich swells like capitalist uh capitalists who imagined that they were pretty hip okay right <laughs> and the capitalists he would charge $200 for the dinner right and the artists he would invite for free oh nice and so you would get the, but you know, he would never, I don't think he would ever tell the the capitalists that the artists weren't also paying $200. So, you know, you'd get an invitation to one of these things and you'd show up and there'd be, you'd be in these like totally bizarre conversations with people who are like rich and arrogant and, and, you know, like super full of themselves, but also, you know, imagined that they were bohemian and then actual bohemians who like all bohemians just want to be around rich people. My God, please. Will some of that money fall out of your pockets <laughs> right. into mine? Right? right. And so some of those dinners were really fascinating. I remember standing out in front of one of them, you know, smoking cigar. It was downtown in some abandoned building, uh, uh, like an abandoned 10 story brick building. And we had colonized the space and had a big table covered with candelabra and we were eating this fantastic meal and we were, we could stand, I'm standing outside smoking cigars with a couple of guys. And uh, one of them's like, well, yeah, you know, I own this building. And I was like, what's a $10 million building? Even, uh, even abandoned. He was like, yeah, I own this building. The one across the street, the one down there, we're going to, I think we're going to turn this one into like a, you know, and he just starts describing like his urban renewal plan which represents you know, like a, like a hundred million dollars of development. And he's just talking about the buildings that we can see with our eyes from where we're standing. And he's not that much older than me. The guy's 55 years old or something. I'm like, Oh wow. Okay. Right. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, right. Exactly. Like, um, and there's not, there's no, there's no way in this conversation that I can possibly benefit from your wealth. Right. At no point are you going to, like a, a million dollars is not going to fall out of your pocket, nor are you going to employ me in any fashion. We're just peers standing out front, smoking a cigar at this funny fucking dinner. Um, and you know, and there's, and there's a lot more for me to take away from this than there is for, for you, right? Your, you, your experience of this is that this is bohemian and this, this makes you feel like you are, um, you're one of the good guys. But for me, this is a window on the world and I should be soaking it up, like soaking up this knowledge. Mm. Oh, all by way of saying that Michael Hebb now has graduated to, he's recently started having what he calls death dinners where he brings <laughs> a similar group of people together, 20 people or so, 15 to 20 people. And the theme of the evening is death. And we're all, we're going to go around the table and everybody's going to tell a story about a death 
that is very personal to them and, and close to them. And, and, um, the expectation is that you, um, you know, you'd be very forthcoming because it doesn't sound, it doesn't sound really like an upbeat kind of a meal. Well, except that the, is it like cathartic in a way? It's very cathartic. The stories are intense. Uh, and everybody gets very emotional and very connected to one another really fast because you, you know, it's a, it's a very quick window into people. Yeah. But it's not the dinner doesn't cause death. It's a dinner where you talk about that. You're talking about death. You're talking about how it affects you. But one of the takeaways, does he call it a death dinner? Does he say you want to come the death dinner? Yeah. And if you go to more than one, do you have a tell a different story each time? Well, I don't know. I haven't. I've been to many, many, many of his dinners, but I've only been to one deaf dinner. Yeah, and I'm not sure if I went to a second one. Uh, you know whether I would tell a second story or tell the first one again. You know, it's it, it it's it's very much about revealing yourself to other people rather than like having a good story to tell. But the but the the point of it seems to me and what keeps it lighthearted or what makes it in the end feel light. And what I was saying to this reporter from Las Vegas was that the big tragedy of being human is that our lifespan is so short relative to what we can perceive uh, is the, you know, relative to our perception of the span of time and history and And so many of us, I mean, we all ultimately die before we see the project completed. You know, my dad was born at a, at a time when most houses in America didn't have electricity or running water. And when he died, he was, he had already taught himself how to use the internet and was, um, you know, was pretty well versed, had his own cell phone, was, was pretty versed in the, the internet reality. But at no point along the way, I I don't think would he have ever said that he saw a project completed, right? He saw a man walk on the moon and he learned to fly. My dad learned to fly in the U S Navy in a biplane. Wow. They taught him to fly in a biplane. (laughs) And, and yet, uh, you know, he still probably almost certainly felt like he died too soon that he wished he could see what happens next. And we all, you know, the, the, the interstate highway system was built before I was born. So every day I drive on a thing that, that like foreshadowed me. It's still very new though. The interstate highway system is still new. It's recent memory. It was, it was probably a mistake to build, but it reflects how we felt 50 years ago, which is, or 60 years ago, which is like just very recent, but it's still older than me. And, and it will still be here after I'm gone, even if it's in a state of disrepair, or even if it's been colonized by self-driving cars, like, remnants of it will continue to exist and we can we see that everywhere we go every day the building i'm sitting in right now is uh 
so much older than me and will be here after I'm gone. And that feeling of being just a blip in history is funny. It's hilarious. And it's what makes the death dinner lighthearted. And it's why my interest in history is so pervasive because it's around us all the time. And most of us just don't think of it as history or of history having anything to do with it. You're just sort of like, well, this is the building I'm in. And that's, that's why you get, you know, that's why people like buy an old house and tear it down and build a new house because they don't see themselves as, as caretakers of a, of a story already in progress. They just, you know, all that matters to them is now. And this old house is in their way because what they want is a new house and they want it in this location. And so that lack of, that lack of feeling that the story that you're playing a, a small part in is what's really interesting. And your part of it is insignificant. And we, each of us is insignificant and the deaths that happen in our family and in our world and our own death is, you know, it's not a big deal. It's really comically small. And that is sad. I wish I could live a thousand years so that I could see the scope of these stories unfold a little bit more, but I'm not granted that view. I'm only granted this, this, you know, what feels like a pathetic view where whether or not the city of Seattle builds light rail to the airport or something that like, that's something that's going to take up decades of my life. Right. And when they finally open it, when they finally open the whole light rail system, I'll be an old man and I'll have watched it get built. And in the grand scheme of things, it's just nothing. It's just like, fuck really? That's my whole life was taken up with this, this dumb. I mean, I can imagine it. Why can't it, you know, like why shouldn't, projects of that scale be be as small in my history as they are in in world history so i think about history all the time because it because it lets me lets me read back in the story and then i try to read forward in the story too um i guess as a way of of trying to live a little bit longer elite well you know then we talked about build like in a, a while ago I, i'm trying to remember which show it was but we talked about the idea of like leaving leaving something behind as part of your legacy something that you've built something you've created and i think it's it's almost like you're describing that you know like the frustration that we all have and maybe it's a guy thing because women can make children and guys can sort of father them, but it's different, I guess. And men always want to build something like you want to make a thing and like making that thing. It, it's so hard to do. Now there used to be a time where you would just go and just start cutting down trees and building something, you know, and you, you knew how to do that because 
that's how you got a house as you built it. You know, like we've completely lost touch with that. Like that few hundred years ago, if you lived in a house, you probably built the house yourself. Hundred, you know, a couple hundred years back. And that wasn't, it might not be a great house, but like you, you built it, you built your own house. And now the idea of like someone building their own house, it's preposterous. Unless you're buying land out in, you know, somewhere in Washington somewhere. <laughs> and that makes you a pretty special kind of a person to do that. You know, like, like if you're like, if you sort of oversee the guy who comes to fix your AC, you're, you're a pretty, you know, hands-on kind of person these days. You know what <laughs> well, I mean? I, I guarantee you that none of the shelters that were built out on those 126 acres will survive into the future. The first really big storm will, will, you know, will break them all and crush them into the ground and set loose the pigs and <laughs> overturn the greenhouse. Like that is all a very tenuous little settlement um, that reflects a law, a, a, a loss of ability. Like, you know, we have forgotten how to build proper house, your average person, you know, and the people that have built that compound, some of them are great little carpenters and they built some beautiful things, but it's just not quite the same. And, you know, and part of that of course is that even way, way out in the County like that, there's an inspector that comes along and says, you don't have the, you know, you don't have the permits to build this kind of structure out here because the bridge connecting this property the bridge over the creek isn't rated for fire trucks and so it's illegal to build you know a, a like a year round habitation in a place that you can't get a fire truck to and of course a hundred years ago that that kind of Regulation didn't exist, and there are plenty of people in America that long for a time um, when they could just build whatever the hell they wanted on their property, and nobody from the city could come and tell them right, uh, tell them anything. But you know, those are the rules. Those are the new rules. Got to have a bridge. I mean, it's fascinating to me, even just thinking back to how disconnected that so many people are from just the inner workings of their own house, let alone building one. Just the fact that we're, we're disconnected from that. You know, my next door neighbor in the first house that I bought, my next door neighbor was the same age as me. And, uh, and he was an architect and his, his main sort of, uh, paternal influence was his granddad and his granddad knew how to like build everything. And he had inherited a lot of that knowledge from him and a lot of his tools as well. So I guess something happened where their deck, the front deck of their house, they discovered had sort of rotted and had bad wood in it, things like that. So instead of doing what a, a normal person would do in whatever year this was, 2005, I don't know, instead of doing 
what a normal person would do, which is call and start getting estimates. He just said, oh, well, I, I know how to fix this. And he completely ripped apart and ripped the entire front porch off his house. The roof part as well. And started, you know, he did plans up and he started building a new front deck and porch. And somehow he just knew how to do it. But, you know, because he was weird, it wasn't good enough to use like the standard size wood. He had to rip the wood, which means I guess you put it on some kind of like band saw or not band saw, some one of these, you know, saw blade things that are rotating that pull the the board across. Saw blade thing that's rotating. Yeah. Yeah. And he had to trim a half an inch off each board just because he wanted it to be a little different to show that it was custom. But the, it took him months to do this because he would only be able to do it after work and on the weekends. But it looked amazing, and it was truly a craftsmanship kind of thing, you know? He built a deck that was better and nicer and more well-made than the rest of the whole house. You know, the front, pat, the front porch, front patio. But it, was, it looked great. But only somebody... The only person who would ever really appreciate it was him. To everyone else, you couldn't really tell the difference. You couldn't look at it and tell that it was new. It looked nice, but I mean, you wouldn't necessarily know that it was new. You wouldn't know the amount of time, care, effort, energy that he put into it. Some guys would. I mean, some yeah. some people would come along and say, oh, this hey, is a little different. Nice porch. Yeah. But he did it more for himself. He did it because he enjoyed the process. He enjoyed the craftsmanship. He enjoyed the fact that he made this thing and that he left a little something behind there as part of that history of part of that building. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of cool. You know, how many of us today can say that we've done something like that? And he, you know, he even took, I remember this now. I haven't thought about this in a long time. Uh, we, he invited me and, you know, I guess the other couple neighbors that lived there, he did a little time capsule inside of one of the banisters of the porch. Nice. Which was, uh, you know, he made the, of course, made the banisters out of four pieces of wood to make the squares. And I guess one of them he made hollow. And so we put some, I forget what we put in there. But that, uh, you couple, know. A couple of tuna melts. Yeah. <laughs> Dear people of the future, <laughs> this is not a grilled cheese sandwich. This is a melt. You know, but think about that. Like the uh, the whole idea of that is it's foreign to most of us. The idea of building something and leaving something behind, you know, it's uh, it's interesting. It's interesting. Yeah, it's I weird. mean, I, I think it was foreign to, you know, to city slickers before, too. It was just that there were so many... There were more people that could do that kind of work, but also there were just fewer people. You know, we have proliferated and that's part of, you know, part of what makes kind of everything more complicated to understand or, or I don't know, more difficult. It's just that there are so many more of us and with with every additional person, it doesn't seem like 
it doesn't seem like we are increasing the spread and breadth and depth of knowledge. It seems like we're adding a lot of people to the equation. And most of those people are, you know, are slotting themselves Mm -hmm. somewhere into the equation of like, well, I don't need to know how to build anything or do anything. I just need to figure out a way to, you know, to make a living, I guess is, is the parlance. And, um, you know, and now, of course, that that we've raised a generation of people to think that they're all artists, we're even further divorced from real knowledge. And you know, we have a generation. We have we have a, a, a like the, the. It seems to me like the fastest growing group of of people, or the the, the fastest growing skill set, is you know, this skill set that we're practicing right now on this podcast, self-documentation, right. Self, uh, um, self-examination. It isn't really a, I mean, I guess it is a skill set relative to what our parents knew about themselves. We know a lot more and that seems beneficial to us because we can, point to the damage that our parents and their parents did by not knowing themselves very well. We can point to a lot of horrible results. Uh, But we also like none of us really know how to, we didn't, we didn't build on their knowledge exactly. Right. Like, like we know less about what they knew about and we've traded it for, knowing more about ourselves. And I wonder that seems like maybe inevitable or seems like that's the progress. That's what looks like progress to us. Now. Yeah. You know, for sure. And I, and I wonder if it is, or I, I like, I wonder again, outside of our, our own short histories in the, in the, in the sense of historical time, 250 years from now, Will all the, you know, all the carpentry is just going to be done by laser printers, <laughs> by 3D printers, and, and we will be so consumed with our own stories and our own dreams um, just because we have, you know, we have the time and the luxury to do it because no one has to have, no one has to learn any skills anymore. No one has to learn how to throw knives or right or even cook a meal. Yeah. A friend of mine, he used to run a hosting company. I think he might still run it technically speaking, but as I knew him, he started to get sort of more and more interested in becoming, you know, and listening to you talk about the sort of post-apocalyptic world I won't, I'm not sure if he believed that the world was going to experience some kind of catastrophic end, whether it was, you know, nuclear war or a meteor hits or something. And he didn't seem like a paranoid kind of a person. He wasn't starting to prep. He wasn't starting to stockpile water or anything. But he definitely had this philosophy or this belief that he sort of developed in the time that I knew him that being able to do these kinds of things, being able to 
survive and take care of yourself and it, you know almost that survivalist mentality in a way of being able to say i want to know how to hunt and kill and skin uh, an animal to survive i want to know how to set up a shelter that's not something that will just last for a few days but that i could actually live in and maybe even build a dwelling that's permanent or semi-permanent and how to exist in nature and on the land and not be dependent on commercial vans to bring the supplies that I need. And he got really into this and he, I think he became an EMT because Mm -hmm. he wanted to have a skill that would be valuable after, you Uh know, so that, Uh so that if you knew how to set bones and do CPR really well and, you know, amputate a limb or whatever it was that he thought would be important, that he would be one of the people who would wind up being, at uh, worst case scenario, valuable. Yeah, best valuable case scenario, they don't eat you first. Right. Best case scenario, maybe even a leader. Well, you know, but I wonder, I wonder if the guy that can, I mean, we, we, that's the thing, we'll never be far enough away, none of us, Let's say the apocalypse happened right now. Um, 20 years from now, the people that are born today who never knew a world other than the, than the apocalypse, like those people are not going to be without guidance. There will be plenty of people that survive the apocalypse who teach them to read and teach them, um, you know, figure out from books how to do stuff. You know, that, that road warrior idea that, yeah, that, um, sometime I'm talking about specifically beyond Thunderdome. Right. I knew you were (laughs) where I don't know why, but I knew you were. You know, the kids have invented a complete cosmology. Yeah. Uh, that was that was an appealing idea because because the oldest of the kids would have been, you know, old enough to know, but not old enough to know well. But the, the problem is that the youngest of the kids in that group were, what, five, six? Yeah. So the apocalypse could only have been six years ago. And which means that those one, the ones that were 16 during beyond Thunderdome were 10 when the apocalypse happened, right? Which means that they were 10 years old. They could speak perfectly well and read and knew that there was, you know, knew that the sky man was not flying in a metal Eagle, that it was in a fucking airplane, right? You know? And so, so it's, it, it's, so much of our idea of the apocalypse is like we would revert to booga booga so fast. Well, okay. So let me, I, first of all, I agree with you, but second of all, let me, let me jump in and say in, according to the lore of the Mad Max films and from the reading that I've done, because the movies don't do an, a very good job of explaining this. <laughs> Are you Mad Max explaining? I right may, now? I may be doing that. Okay. And right. that in the the first movie is pre 
any kind of apocalyptic war. It is during a time where a, a time of degradation, degradation due to uh, running out of resources, resources primarily at this point being fuel and energy. Then I believe sometime between the first movie and the second movie, we have gone into full on economic collapse. We have gone into complete loss of all of the majority of our fuel and energy resources to the point where perhaps now there has been war about this. And this is the part where the real Mad Max fans may step in and correct me. So I welcome, I welcome the correction, but sometime I believe between the second and third movie, if not perhaps during the second movie time period, that's when the nuclear war happened and it might've been a limited exchange, but it was enough to destroy the major cities and to push the world into not only a point where there's no energy in a conventional sense, but there aren't even weapons that we think of, you know, a a gun, a working gun would be very hard to find. Uh, But, there has also been the destruction of the world and the environment. So now everything is much more like a desert and you can't grow anything and etc. So while those kids might have been born five or so years from when the nuclear war happened and the pilot was able to escape, spoiler alert, escape in the plane with the with the kids to try to get from whatever terrible city they were into a better city captain walker 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 that they may have been born already been sort of feral yeah like they they the nuclear war might have happened 10 years ago 5 to 10 years ago but they have always been in a world without electricity without a grocery store to go to without the things that we think of as civilization they they were born post mm. that because oh, all it all makes so much more sense to I me just, now i had to throw that out there yeah no no i i i uh i believe me as as deeply as i've waded into the <laughs> road warrior world yes it has not extended to reading any road warrior fanfic. Well, no, or, or I'm sorry, or <laughs> Wikipedia are there, entry. Are there are there books? Are there there's Wiki, there's books? There are Wikipedia entries. There are. I'm gonna have to go now to interviews. Wikipedia yeah, and read about. Uh, but but in 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 our own context, <laughs> I think if you. If there was an apocalypse, let's say, of some kind, let's say there was some kind of climate change that was happening where all of a sudden it didn't rain in the Pacific Northwest for all of May, June, July, August, September, let's say. And let's say it kept doing that. Let's say that California ran out of water. I mean, it could happen. Um. And you somehow found yourself marooned in a community of juggalos. You might already find that there were people living in a culture that was characterized by deprivation of a kind. Right. Deprivation of, of opportunity and familiarization with 
language and law mm-hmm. so that in a very short amount of time you would be you would be maybe um speaking a patois right that was made up mostly of you know sort of misremembered hip hop lyrics and you know and like an incomplete understanding of science like that could happen but but if if the apocalypse happened right now and i and i banded together with the people who are sort of right around me most of them would know that a that a that an emt was not magic right like you would have to you would have to go a couple of generations before somebody that had the knowledge somebody who could fly an airplane seemed like they were a magic man most of us would not forget that like even though electricity doesn't work anymore it isn't um it isn't magic it's some science that maybe we didn't completely understand but we can still you know connect to to a world to a worldview right so my usefulness to to a post apocalyptic tribe is never going to extend beyond my own lifetime i'll never have the the great advantage of knowing what i know but living in a world where no one else knows that yeah and that's the appeal i think of so much post apocalyptic fantasy right is like I would be the king of those people, but I won't live till then. There's no there's no scenario in which my commonplace knowledge seems like magic. It's basically a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court, mm-hmm. except set in a dystopian future rather than imaginatively in a medieval past. <laughs> 